Hey, what's up, Jordan? This is our uh, Luka Doncic episode, 77th episode of Let's Talk Sports with Kanoa Leahy and Jordan Helling. We're also recording this on Friday the 13th, the morning of, because it's Friday the 13th, right? It's always about like spooky movies and scary stories. And uh, are you a, a, a horror movie fan or a scary movie guy? I'm not. I, I, I'm not. It doesn't do it for me. I'm kind of a scaredy cat. Um, so <laughs> just never have never gotten into it. The uh, the spooky, the the horror, anything like that. Not not my jam. Probably sticking to uh, the sports movies a little too frequently. Speaking of segue, uh, Field of Dreams is a pretty good baseball movie. That's up there for me in my uh, top rated baseball movies of all time. And Major League Baseball seems to agree. So they had what was a long anticipated Field of Dreams associated game between the Yankees and the White Sox played uh, basically in a in a makeshift stadium adjacent to the movie set in Iowa, uh, where Field of Dreams was filmed. And this thing was fantastic. You had Kevin Costner walking out of the cornfields, the White Sox and Yankees players walked out very much like the, the ghosts of Field of Dreams. You had James Earl Jones with the voiceovers. I mean, this thing was played to perfection I thought, and it also uh, helped the cause, the fact that the game itself was one of the best games I've seen all season long, ended with a Tim Anderson walk-off home run after John Carlos Stanton hit a go-ahead home run in the inning before. Uh, and so I just kind of wanted to ask you, how good was that Field of Dreams game the other day? I, I don't think it could have gone better. Like, it was ultimate chicken skin in the beginning, right, when when – Costner walks out and they've got the camera sort of following him through the corn. Um, and, and then the players walk out and, you know, with the throwback jerseys, like some of those guys, like Billy Hamilton looks like a guy who played back in like with the hiked up pants and like the oversized Jersey. That's a little too big ultimate chicken skin. Like that was, that was as cool as it gets and, and major league baseball and some of the other sports, they've sort of tried the, unorthodox setting right whether it's the stadium series in the nhl or, or the this past year where the nhl played like right on the shores of lake tahoe um <clears throat> you know the nba's tried to play outdoors before the nfl they, they the hall of fame game right it's it's in a you know a glorified high school stadium baseball's done a few of these i really like the little league classic that they have done right they, they play it at like an old single a field that was pretty cool because you get the little leaguers in there and it's a very fun atmosphere, but this, this takes the cake. Like it was, it was incredible, incredible. The only thing that would have made it better if they played on the original field with no mm. fence. And like, if a ball goes into a corn, go find it. Like the backstop <laughs> is literally just like a chain link fence. And if a ball gets by the catcher, go get it. Like that would have been the only thing that would have made it better. Um, the, 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 the game itself, right. The, the, the ninth inning just was bananas. Absolutely bananas. Yeah. Yeah. Costner walking out, addressing the crowd and the, the, the James Earl Jones voiceovers. It's just, a, you know, it's too bad. I mean, he's up there in age, right? If he had, if he could have been there, I was hoping yeah. Ray Liotta was going <laughs> to walk out of the corner Shoeless Joe? at some point, just in full garb as Shoeless Joe. And just imagine how bonkers that place would have gone if, if Ray Liotta had made an appearance. I don't know. Have you, know, you seen it, Ray Liotta lately? It, it's hard to recognize him. He's, yeah, he's had know, some work done. <laughs> yeah, that's that's why he would have needed to be in costume, you know, just to make sure everybody knew exactly what was going on there. 
Um, but it was it was cool. Like it, all of the emotions I think that Field of Dreams elicits, the movie itself, I think they captured that. Like I don't, it, I I thought that would have been pretty hard to do, but I think they recaptured the true emotional tie that 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 comes out of Field of Dreams, right? Baseball and father son connections and all of that and nostalgia. They somehow recreated that like in real life for an actual major league baseball game. And I, I got to tip my cap. That was, it was really impressive and really, really cool. And also shout out to Travis Chalk of Baseballism, previous mm-hmm. guest on our podcast. Uh, Baseballism had a shop over there, right? They were part of that celebration as well. And, and part of this uh, incredible, unique event. Uh, Field of Dreams honored by Major League Baseball. Ironically, the movie that my Mets most represent here right now at this stage of the season would be maybe the first half of Major League. Would maybe be what the the movie that they're honoring. I don't know. Your Cubs, uh, they're kind of looking a little bit uh, bad news bears-ish. So I feel like our, our favorite baseball teams are honoring different baseball movies as opposed to what we saw at the Field of Dreams game. Yes. Yes. Have to, of course, it had to be the White Sox, right? They couldn't do the Field of Dreams game without the White Sox being there, with Shoeless Joe being like one of the main characters. But yeah, they, they picked the right teams from those cities. Uh, all right. With that, uh, our pregame warmup is pow. It's time for game time, and we want to welcome you to the show. Rich Miano is going to be our guest. He is our resident football guru, and this goes back years uh, when we previously had our radio show on Maui's ESPN. And he is a guy who has seen the game of football from just about every angle as an 11-year veteran in the NFL, former walk-on standout at the University of Hawaii. Uh, he then went into coaching, was part of June Jones staff at the University of Hawaii, Greg McMackin's staff. Uh, this is a guy who was then a head coach at Kaiser, led them to the promised land. I mean, he has seen the game from every angle, and he has also experienced success from every angle now he is a color analyst and i'm looking forward to the opportunity uh, to work alongside him for the university of hawaii telecast on spectrum sports pay-per-view so we look forward to talking with rich and we'll save all of our football discussion for when we have our resident football guru on with us in just a little bit but let's get to our first official game time topic and that's hawaii's little league tradition of excellence continuing yesterday the HNL boys, as they are referred to, defeated Petaluma 13 to three to claim the Western Regional title and become the third straight team from the state of Hawaii to qualify for the Little League World Series in Williamsport. You had Pele Payanol went four for four in the game with a double, a triple, three runs scored. Micah Bennett added three hits, a double, four runs scored. This is a team that's coached by Brandon Sardina. And of course, that is a very prominent baseball name here in the islands. He's the older bro of Dane and Bronson who played in the bigs also duke who was a standout baseball player in his right so per usual this comes with a slew of other youth baseball teams from hawaii that made waves or are making waves in national tournaments um you posted an incredible statistic as it pertains to williamsport and this little league baseball world series if you would uh, do us the pleasure of recapping that uh, as well as as presenting your theory uh, as to why Hawaii continues to experience this incredible run of success in youth baseball, particularly in this Little League World Series tournament, which is the highest profile of them all. Yeah, you know, it, it's pretty incredible. And and my dad and I got the, the pleasure of calling the state Little League tournament, which was here on Maui in Kihei, um, 
late in July, and and that tournament was terrific. I mean, we had a number of one-run games. And that's the thing, right? If you win the Hawaii State tournament, like you're really good, um, because history will tell us that the Little League World Series expanded in 2001, going from eight to 16 teams, eight American, eight international teams. So they've had 20 editions of the Little League World Series. That'll include this year because of last year being taken off. Hawaii has qualified now seven times for Williamsport. That's seven out of 20. That's more than a third of the time the Hawaii State champ will have gone to Williamsport. So obviously six regional winners before that. Um, three straight berths, right? Honolulu in 2018 when they won it all. Maui in 2019, Central East Maui in 2019. And now Honolulu again here in 2021 with last year off. They're 26 and five in the six previous trips. 26 and five, three world championships. They finished as a runner up overall one time, a U.S. champion. And then Central East Maui last year, making it to the U.S. championship game, ended up finishing fourth overall. So that's five of the six previous trips, Hawaii to Williamsport. They finished in the top four. And then just for note, because they couldn't fit this in Twitter character limit, <laughs> that other team, that other team, I think it was Pearl City in 2001, they went two and one in a pool play format and lost on like a tiebreaker. So they, they went two and one in a tournament. And I think they beat the team that ended up winning either the U.S. championship or the whole thing. Like they just happened to be like the odd team out in a three-way tie. So it's not like they flamed out that year either. It's incredible. 26 and five in Williamsport. And they're going to be back again this year, right? With the, the two teams advancing. It's a fun team. It really is. It's a really easy team to root for. They've got a lot of likable kids. And I know it's kind of weird to talk about kids as being likable, but they play the game the right way. And I think that is the overarching theme, right? Cause you could talk, it's like, what is, what is it with Island communities, right? Whether it's Hawaii, whether it's Puerto Rico, the Dominican Republic, like those Island nations have put out more major league talent maybe than Hawaii has. Um, not that Hawaii has had, you know, a shortage on major leaguers as we've seen over the last, you know, 20 years plus, and now even going back. Um, but I think the, the level of talent has to be there for sure. Uh, but I think when you combine that with sort of this legacy of coaching guys like the Sardinas, right, who played, who coached, whose father helped coach them, now they're coaching the next generation. Um, Hawaii teams always are fundamentally sound. Like they play great defense. They have great approaches at the plate. Like they are beyond their years in how they approach the game of baseball. Uh, and you see it when you watch them, right? They don't make as many mistakes as the other team. They have better at bats. They make it difficult to get them out. And that usually translates to wins in six inning little league games. Right. And, and uh, from what Hawaii has done sort of, you know, investing in, in youth baseball, it, it's, it's incredible. It really is. And, and then I think now as it's been, you know, 20 years with this legacy and even going back, right. There were teams prior to 2001 with the, the smaller field. Um, I think kids grow up, they see older kids, right. Playing on TV in the little league world series. It's like, I want to do that. I can do that. Why can't I do that? Why can't my group of friends, you know, when we're 11, 12 years old, go ahead and do that. And so I think you see now, right. It's, it's this legacy where it just keeps building on itself and, and it keeps pushing more and more talent. And we see it when they get to high school, we see it when they get to college. Some of these guys are now playing professional baseball. It's incredible. Yeah. I think there are just some sports that vibe with the community, with the culture uh, in which that sport takes place. So baseball, volleyball here in the islands right there's so much passion uh, revolving around that sport 
even at a youth level, football certainly. And so you see it play out in this way. It's just the perfect combination of a passion for a sport, of kids being really enthusiastic, and about coaches who are as devoted as they come to teaching the game and to teaching, I think, the valued and righteous principles of the game when it comes to fundamentals and otherwise. And this team, HL boys, they're going over to Williamsport and they got a shot here, right? This year, the Little League World Series will be uh, played differently uh, because of the international travel restrictions. There's not going to be an international contingent of teams. This is going to be an all US tournament, basically. Uh, and so traditionally, Hawaii's done pretty well against the other US teams. It'll be interesting to see how far the HL boys can go. All right, with that said, on that topic, uh, we can maneuver here. We, we can sort of pivot to a new segment for the show. Uh, it is entitled Unpopular Opinion. We discuss some of the biggest topics and headlines from, from week to week on our podcast. But there are some issues that I believe I have a certain opinion about that goes a little bit against the grain, that maybe would not be the popular opinion among the rest of the mainstream public. And one of them involves Little League Baseball, and it's probably uh, something that will uh, get me excommunicated uh, from being able to talk about sports. But my first unpopular opinion, and I know you have a few to share as well, but my number one is I'm not a huge fan of the immense television coverage of Little League Baseball. All right, there. I said it. I got it out. At a time when we're celebrating the HL boys, and it is our top topic of discussion here on this episode of the podcast, I am also going to flip it and say I'm not a huge fan of the immense television coverage of Little League Baseball. Apparently, the ratings bear out the justification of it. Certainly, the sponsorship. It is a moneymaker for all involved. That said... <sighs> To me, it seems disproportionate the amount of attention that's put on this specific division of this specific organization when there are so many other youth organizations and teams that deserve coverage uh, of equal value, right? We talk about Cal Ripken baseball, Babe Ruth, all of these other, you know, American Legion, all of these other organizations that promote the game at the youth level just as effectively. But Little League Baseball has deemed, has been deemed the one that's going to be put on that pedestal. And so that inequity, I don't necessarily vibe with. And then the other thing is, you know, th these, these are kids. And so while it's very cool for them, it's an incredible experience, I'm sure that they take with them for the rest of their lives. I'm not hating on that part. But there's also the side of it when they don't succeed. And we have these extreme close-ups of 11-year-olds who are crying and who can't necessarily handle the, the pressure of the moment or at least having to experience failure under the pressure of the moment that always gives me the heebie-jeebies man and uh you also have the, the the converse side of it where you also got a lot of entitled kids nowadays right they're like showing up umpires and doing all that stuff and so there's like that's the other byproduct of this immense level of television coverage these kids know they're on tv these coaches certainly know they're on tv i know they're cleaning up their language when they're mic'd up in the huddle as opposed to other times uh, along the way en route to williamsport and other destinations uh so yeah there it is my unpopular opinion on little league baseball i'm not a huge fan of the the wide-ranging television coverage uh Tell me I'm wrong. Well, I mean, the, the millions of viewers who tune in every year are uh, probably <laughs> evidence number one that, uh, you know, that is an unpopular opinion, I will say. Uh, how do you feel about radio coverage of Little League turns? No, I can't. I'm, I'm all uh, for it. I'm all for it. You, you don't have the close up of the kids crying true. on radio 
or any close-up. I think think it's a fair conversation to have, right? Because at some point, it's too much, right? I mean, because if you make it to a regional in the United States at that age group, you're playing on TV. They've gotten to the point where every single game at all eight of these U.S. regionals are either, you know, on ESPN Plus or watch ESPN or on, you know, over linear television, (laughs) you know? So it's like if you win your state tournament in Little League Baseball, you are playing in front of television cameras. And that is a lot, right, for 11 and 12-year-olds. And, and you're right. Like, you know, for a long time, at least here on Maui, and, and I think in the state uh, in a lot of ways, like Horse League was the bigger league, like Bronco, right, 11, 12 years old. That was a bigger deal than Little League Baseball in part because, it, you, you know, you're allowed to take a lead. You're allowed to – it's a little bit of a bigger field. Like, you watch some of these Little Leaguers, right, sometimes, and it's like, man, they are playing on way too small a field. Like, these kids are big, and they are strong, and they are talented, right? And so I always kind of wonder, like, why that age group, and why not, say, like, the 13-, 14-year-old age group, like Pony, right? You're playing on a little bit bigger field, but it's not a full-size field. You're playing by most of the rules, but not necessarily the full-size thing, right? So it was always kind of curious to me, like, why not the one age group above that isn't quite high school yet, that isn't quite playing 90 feet, you know, 380 down the lines or something like that? Like, why why not quite that? I don't know, right? It's completely arbitrary. It is the the marketing of Little League Baseball, and it, it was born out of the wide world of sports, right, way back in the day on ABC, and when they used to cover that thing in Williamsport and the history and the nostalgia. So I, I get it, man. I get it. I, I feel the same way sometimes about high school football coverage and high school sports. <laughs> like, I, that's what I do for a living. And it's like, are we showing a little bit? Too, like, are there, a, is there a little too much coverage on this? Like, it's cool. Like, right. You get to show the communities, you get to show these kids, you get to celebrate their triumphs, but there is a little bit of a, a trade-off with that. Right. There is a little bit of questioning of whether there is overexposure. Uh, but I don't think it's slowing down anytime soon no matter what we say. It definitely is not. Neither is this segment. What's your first unpopular opinion, Jordan, that you'd be willing to share? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to go baseball as well. Um, I kind of like the runner on second base to start <laughs> extra innings. I know a lot of people hate it, and I know it's gotten a lot of pushback, especially initially. Uh, I will I will sort of qualify my statement with saying I do not think we should be doing this like in the playoffs or in the World Series. But in an 162-game regular season, what do we want? We want action. We want base runners. We want things happening. What do we hate? Strikeouts. We hate walks. We hate things that, you know, nothing's going on. You know what forces action? Putting a runner on second base to start an inning with nobody out. All of a sudden, things are in play, and it's a little more exciting. It's like a leadoff double, and then we get to we get to work. Again, not for the playoffs. That's It's a little too gimmicky. Like, we shouldn't be deciding a world championship with a guy, like, standing on second base without having done anything besides, you know, get to extra innings. But in a 162 season, I like the action. It's kind of exciting. I, I feel like Pal Eldridge is somewhere, and he can't hear this, but for some reason he's starting to feel queasy because he's such a baseball yeah, purist. Like, probably. just the fact that this conversation is taking place somewhere in the universe is probably driving him crazy. Uh, that is a very unpopular opinion, uh, as you can tell from social media posts and really kind of uh, far and wide across the baseball universe. But it's not an unpopular opinion here on this podcast because I share the same opinion as you there, Jordan. I do kind of like it. Uh, I'm all for baseball trying new and different things to speed up the game. Obviously, pace of play has been a huge issue here over the last several years, uh, but also just to kind of throw some novelty 
into it. I mean, I, I get the fact that it's a very tradition rich sport. We saw that on full display uh, as it was associated with field of dreams and the romance that's associated with the game. Uh, but that said, yeah, I'm all for things that maybe would be perceived as a little radical, little extreme, but it does add some flair, add some excitement. It is not uh, going to be very purist friendly at times, but yeah, I kind of like it too, man. I find myself paying much closer attention to some of these extra inning games than I otherwise would. All right, we move back over to my side. Another unpopular opinion here. This might be the most unpopular of them all. Space Jam 2 was actually kind of enjoyable. Like it was actually a pretty decent movie. And I know everyone's going to be like, you got your LeBron James blinders on. And that might be true. But from a story arc standpoint, if you go back, we've talked about this before. If you go back and watch the first Space Jam, right? We, we look back on it with such nostalgia, right? It's part of the mythologizing of Michael Jordan, right? And how he never missed a shot ever in his career, never lost a game and all this stuff. And it was like, that Space Jam was a fantastic movie. Go back and watch it now as an adult. It was rubbish. It was really not that well constructed a film. And what I will say about this new legacy Space Jam movie is the story arc makes a little more sense. There's a little bit more of a connectedness from the, the plot setup at the beginning of the movie, the family aspect, certainly, uh, and also the end result of the movie. So from a story arc, just, just sort of a construction standpoint, I, I thought the movie was, was pretty effective. The first Space Jam was basically a two-hour commercial for Michael Jordan. This second one was basically a two-hour commercial for Warner Brothers. So which one would you rather have, the commercial for the individual guy or the commercial for the, the film studio? Uh, I actually thought there were some good elements. I did not hate the movie. Space Jam 2 wasn't that bad. And that's about as powerful an opinion as you can come up with. I, uh, I have no opinion. I haven't watched it yet. But, but maybe maybe your endorsement will motivate me to, to go ahead and watch it. Yeah, it's not it's not a scary movie. It's it's a it's a, it's like a, a very you know animated movie. That's not what the reviews say. <laughs> I mean, maybe LeBron's acting at times is a little scary. But uh, but no, it's 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 actually not that bad. That's right. That's a very powerful statement there. Space Jam 2. Not really that awful. All right. What's your next unpopular opinion? Yeah, my next unpopular opinion, um, kind of similar in terms of hot takiness on the sliding scale, because it's not that hot to take uh, or at least not that strong an opinion. I thought Aaron Rodgers was he was OK at hosting Jeopardy. I feel like people Ooh, fe like head over here. Wow. I feel like everybody was like crowning him. Like he needed to be the replacement. He needed to be the full-time guy. I, th I thought it was, I didn't think it was bad, but I, I, I just, I didn't quite hype jump on the hype train as much as, as much as everybody else did. Uh, okay. I actually thought, I guess that it, it always has to do with your expectation level, right? Just like if you walk into a theater yeah. watching the new Space Jam movie, like what are your expectation levels of that movie? And if you go in with some lower expectations, there's more of a possibility and likelihood that you walk out thinking, Hey, that movie wasn't that bad. And so that's how I felt about Aaron Rodgers' performance as the guest host of Jeopardy. I was going in thinking like, ooh, this could be kind of rough, right? I mean, a football player just stepping in as a game show host and to do so during his playing career, that, that, could, be, that could be rough. And it wasn't that bad. I actually thought he, he did pretty well and handled some of the, the banter between himself and the contestants pretty well also. So, uh, yeah, I, that is an unpopular opinion. Uh, maybe not as unpopular as the actual final selection, but they basically hired like the executive producer of the show to take over as the host when the world was was 
clamoring for them to hire LeVar Burton as the new host of Jeopardy. So uh, yeah, that's, that's your opinion is probably not as unpopular as the actual host they decided upon. Yeah, I, I I don't I don't know about this Richards guy. Like it, <laughs> I read some stuff. He seems like kind of kind of weaseled his way in there. Yeah, has a little bit of a checkered past, if you will. Uh, it is that time to uh, go to our interview with Rich Miano. Talk some football. Obviously, uh, you have the high school season has been pushed back a little bit, but UH and college football right around the corner. The NFL preseason is underway. Uh, so let's dive in University of Hawaii football with the one and only our resident football guru, Rich Miano. All right, we got Rich Miano. And first off, my apologies in advance, Rich. You are unfortunately stuck with me as your broadcast partner here for this upcoming University of Hawaii football season, at least for the games uh, that will be covered by Spectrum Sports on pay-per-view. And of course, that schedule just coming out will have six games. A lot of anticipation here for what is officially year two in the Todd Graham era. But I would argue that this is actually going to be in some ways kind of like a year one. Like this is going to be a much more telling evaluation of what Todd Graham, the head coach, and this Todd Graham regime represent. Would you agree? Yeah, I would. And and, and because of the type of coach he is in terms of elite discipline, elite conditioning, to have a whole offseason to you know, be able to really evaluate uh, and change systems. And I think when we're talking about changing systems, I think, yeah, sure, the run and shoot's going to an air raid. And there's still going to be some 10 personnel, but it's mostly going to be a tight end, 11 personnel. You may see if, you know some sets with uh, obviously the Wildcat is part of what they do. But I think the, the most telling thing that Todd Graham and this staff is trying to instill is physicality, especially amongst the offensive and defensive line. And when I say that, and I know Jordan can relate to that, when you're a run and shoot offensive lineman, you're in a two-point stance and you're probably pass setting 90 to 95% of the time. And even on the run plays, it's kind of a passive aggressive type of running game. He wants to go downhill. He wants to run to set up the pass. And then on the defensive line, they weren't even able to go to four-man fronts on a regular basis because there wasn't enough quality and quantity amongst the defensive line. So he wants to play a more physical brand of football. And that does take some time. So how will it be? Different. Let's start offensively uh, because there is going to be a greater amount of install here because of the fact that they were able to have a spring camp. They were able to have a full training camp. Uh, it's not as though the, the elements and the principles are going to be foreign to what we saw compared to last year, but it might be a little more tight end heavy, a little more pro style in that sense, as you alluded to, probably a little bit more running of the football as an objective. Uh, is Are those the main differences that we can anticipate here? Yeah, I, I think you hit one that I think is going to be more than we think and more than we've seen in decades in terms of this three or four quality tight ends. And when he talks about these tight ends, the transfer, uh, Caleb Phillips, is it from Stanford playing some H back tight end three surface type of tight end, that extra gap in the running game. There's another tight end. I think he's from, I'm not sure it's Georgia or somewhere else. Yeah, that's Kobe uh, Wyatt, a transfer from Kobe Georgia. Wyatt. Yeah. Yeah. And, and he seems to be able to maybe stretch the field in the vertical passing game, which is a big part of what they want to do. So, and I think you're going to see Jonah La, Laulu as well, which we saw in the bowl game last year. And you talk about a guy that's slimmed down, become a better athlete, both rushing the passers and defensive end, and probably as a receiver too, with a rugby background. I, I think 
we're going to, that's going to be a big part of this offense. And, and I think we're going to see, like I mentioned earlier, downhill running game, but I think you're going to see a better chef and Kadero. I think you're going to see a faster offense. I think you're going to see a guy now and, and think about Chevin. you know, people, you hear some people actually criticize that position play last year. I think of it as this, when you've been in the run and shoot and Jordan can relate a former quarterback, the footwork is completely different. The signal calling is different. The um, play action pass is different. There's probably some similarity in the RPO game. And there is some probably vertical uh, routes that are very similar, but Chevin regressed from a coaching standpoint, a philosophical standpoint. Um, but I think he, what he wants him to be is the commander. And he talks about this in length. He has to command the huddle. He has to step up and really be verbal in big situations. And that was not Chevin Cordero's or any local quarterbacks kind of persona. So there's going to be a whole bunch of things that I think we'll see early and often. Yeah, I was kind of curious about that, Rich, from, from Chevin's standpoint, right? Then you don't get to say it too often, but he's a fourth-year sophomore. So he, he already <laughs> yeah. had two years under sort of the run-and-shoot version of things under Rolo and staff, and now this is his second year with with Todd Graham and his crew. And they they repeatedly sort of talk about at least the, the, the term that jumps out to me. They want him to be a point guard, right? They want their quarterbacks to be a point guard of this offense. What, what do you – what – registers when you hear that what do you anticipate that looking like what what do you think they mean when they talk about point guard of the offense as a quarterback well, well a leader a commander a, a more verbal uh more situational football stepping up and, and, and being real confident in what they do but here's a guy with the football to make decisions as a point guard does in basketball you have to make good decisions on a consistent basis and he also said when Cano and I uh interviewed him that he is the second most dangerous guy on this offense, the second most explosive guy in this offense to Calvin Turner. And he does, as I mentioned throughout the year last year, no matter how sometimes he wasn't accurate, maybe sometimes he didn't go through his reads, maybe sometimes he didn't even make good decisions last year, he was still a defensive coordinator's nightmare because the ability to extend plays, I think there's a plethora of quarterbacks that can do that, but the ability to get out of bounds, the ability to not only extend plays, but take it to the house, his speed, as Kenny Patton will tell you, is much better than people give credit for. He is a fast, quick twitch, the ability to feel that backside pressure and pirouette out and then God, as a former defensive back coach, it's a nightmare knowing that he can run it. Uh, he can throw it and you have to plaster your receivers and you almost can't play man coverage against these guys unless you're blitzing and expect the ball to come out quick because his ability to turn a 12 yard, you know, scramble play into a 40 yard first downfield position touchdown type of play is uncanny. I, I think he is, you know, I love Calvin Turner. I still think Chevin Cordero is the most dangerous guy in this conference because he's touching the ball so much and the ability to hurt you. You mentioned touches, right, of the of the football, and I thought last year with, with what we saw from Calvin Turner, there were some games where he seemed to get the football a, a bit more than other games, and there was a little bit of inconsistency there, and, and we have seen how productive he was based on the number of touches he got. Uh, what do you expect them to do to get him the football maybe even more than we saw last year and take advantage of that explosiveness? 
Well, one thing is that obviously as a punt returner, we Cano and I watched him catch punts and he's smooth. That does not come overnight. So there's some practice in that. Obviously in the kickoff return game, I think you'll see some wildcat passes that will open up the box, so to speak, because you're just stacking the box right now. There's not one pass on film from the wildcat formation with Calvin Turner. But I also think, you know, the ability, even though they have two good running backs, to get him in the backfield and get immediate touches. Uh, we saw a lot of fly sweep, uh, speed sweep type of action with him. And then there's that, that you know, check down because he's out in the flat if you don't hand him off the ball on some type of speed uh, sweep. And then he, Todd Graham said to Cano and I, he's the best receiver we have at the X, or Z, the wideout. He's the best slot we have on the inside. He's the best running back we have. He's the best punt returner we have. He's the best kickoff return. We had, and he was, you know, the senior bowl has already put him on the watch list. And the thing, Jordan, that really stands out, and when you think of back to last year's, he got very few touches the first two games because they thought he might be a defensive back. They didn't know what they had. Who did? Yeah, that guy is is incredible. And uh, like you said, he all of those accolades, and he's also probably the second or third best quarterback <laughs> on, on this roster. Well, he, he was the second best last year, and maybe he's the third this year, right? <laughs> That's right. Yeah, another guy that, that is probably worthy of at least a mention uh, that uh, Coach Graham seems really excited about is True Edwards. He is the son of Troy Edwards, former NFL and Bolitnikoff Award uh, receiver. So, uh, yeah, it, they seem to have some pieces on offense, especially as they're looking to run tempo and run maybe as many as 70 plays per game. Um, they seem to have some pieces to be able to do that. We'll see how that goes. Let's switch it over now to the area more of your expertise, the defensive side of the ball. And one of the objectives in the offseason for Todd Graham was, as you mentioned, they played a lot of basically exclusively three-man fronts last year out of necessity because of a lack of depth up front. Uh, they have a little bit less depth at the linebacker position this year because of injuries and other circumstances, but he said we wanted to load up and get more athletic, get longer up front. And so I think we're going to see a lot more in the way of four man, five man fronts. They have Zacchaeus McKinney, a transfer from Oklahoma. They have Ote Baker, who's supposed to be a great rush and uh, from Tyler Jr. College. And so what will this defense, if, if everything comes to fruition the way Todd Graham's hoping it will, what will this defense look like? Well, and Pita Tonga, too, that gives him another 300-pounder, a blessment to Allah, a zero technique, a one technique, probably can play a three or a shade as well. Um, I think what it's going to look like, and I think Jordan will agree, being a former quarterback, is the best pass defense is a pass rush. We haven't had a true defensive end, you know, and and, and I love Kaimana Padella, but he was all of 5'9", 5'10", maybe 5'11". Uh, long levers, Ote Baker, the ability, you know, good hips, uh, the ability to uh, turn speed into power from the defensive end position. And when we showed up, I showed up, I don't know, they were maybe in the first third of the scrimmage last week. Sure enough, he put pressure on the quarterback, came over to the sidelines, and I saw the celebration because they know they have something. So I think Ote Baker may be the most influential player on this defense. I'm not saying he's better than Darius Moore, Sal, because that guy, we could spend the whole broadcast <laughs> talking about that guy. Um, but I think a huge addition, Pete Tatonga gives him that other, you know, the depth to play seven or eight defensive linemen, to be in multiple fronts, especially the four-man front. And, you know, when you talk to him, he's exactly right. The teams that gave him the most trouble last year, San Diego State and Wyoming, what do they do? They run the football. If you're going to win in the Mountain West Conference, if you're going to go up to Wyoming in November, if you're going to try to beat San Diego State, a perennial power, if you really want to hang with Boise State, 
you got to be able to run that football and you got to be able to stop the run more importantly. So to stop the run, you can't do it with just a blessment to Allah and Dewan Wagner, you know, undersized, but I'll tell you, he's not a bad football player, but now fresh, it's going to be like hockey substituting four guys. They're going to jump over the wall. They're going to run in. They're going to play their two or three downs. And uh, I think they're going to get some efficiency. And last year you either had to manufacture a pass rush by bringing the corner and that's not manufacturing. Well, that's kind of manufacturing. All you had to show blitz and then drop. And he said there were times they dropped nine and, and, you know, his son would get on the headset, dad, what are you doing? That's never been part of Todd Graham's kind of uh, DNA, but they had to drop nine because they couldn't get pressure anyway. So you might as well drop everybody. So I think this year, instead of having to bring the corner and, 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 and really do some schematic things, if you can get a physical pass rush with just four people, you can play good pass defense. Yeah, because even just out of desperation and trying to get some pressure, uh, Todd Graham admitted, and this was a question that you asked him, I thought uh, pretty astutely, uh, that he probably ran more corner blitzes than he ever did as a coach in any other season of his career. Uh, and so give us a sense, describe to us and the listeners the ability to uh, get some pressure and plug up some holes up front with a greater front line, uh, how that can be more effective against some strong rushing teams like they have really throughout the Mountain West Conference. Yeah, I have personal experience that when I first went to the Philadelphia Eagles, you know, I was graded, I think, an A minus by a very tough uh, sporting press in terms of nickelback safety, you know, getting in there, making plays. Well, it's a lot easier to play free safety when the quarterback looks one way and you can start to move that way and you're not going to get looked out in the middle of the field because he can't come backside because he doesn't have that time. So a great pass rush is great pass defense. And then when it comes to tackling, and I think this is what Todd Graham talked about the most, he wasn't as concerned about some of the deep passes because that will happen. You'll get some chunk yardage plays in the passing game. He was concerned about the deep runs, the long runs, and it was the third level. And what happens when you have to manufacture pass rush, when you're sending linebackers, one guy gets out of a gap. One guy uh, doesn't do his responsibility. That means there's no linebackers. Those guys are coming downhill because they have to, whether you're run dogging or whether you're pass dogging. And they, now you have safeties. Those safeties were like me when I didn't have Jerome Brown and I didn't have Reggie White. I didn't have those guys. You give a running back a two-way go with a full head of steam, there's not a lot of safeties that are going to make those tackles. So the safeties, I don't think were very efficient or as athletic as they needed to be last year. They lost Eugene Ford. Uh, Kai Kanashiro was, you know, he's good, but he's kind of a Swiss Army knife, nickelback, cornerback, some safety ability. But they got the kid from Georgia. They got the kid from Iowa State. They got Eugene Ford back. They don't have to uh, send those backers as much on rundowns, whatever else. So you're going to have a second level, at least to slow these guys down where the safeties can make easier open field tackles. And I think that's going to be a big improvement because if you take away some of those chunk yardage runs, Wyoming, San Diego State, you're in a better football game. That's the make or break sometimes, right, with, with getting a winning record, finding yourself in a bowl game. Uh, Rich, Vegas basically has UH's win total six, six and a half, kind of right down the middle of a 13-game schedule, of course, highlighted by two road trips in their first three games, you know, in Pasadena, UCLA, at Oregon State, week three, week two, technically week three, their third game of the season. Where, where do you sort of expect this team to, to finish in the pecking order in the Mountain West and, and what they're going to look like after a 13-game schedule? I, I think it's uh, an embarrassingly low prediction. And, and I'll go to this. 
you know, the college football now with the transfer portal, college football now with unintended consequences of COVID, uh, with lack of JC recruiting for most institutions because they already had, you know, the players that they needed and they have too many players. They have, you know, not enough lockers or whatever else because everybody's coming back. And the plus, you know, you still have your 23, 24, 25 incoming freshmen. Hawaii was able to be a good NFL team in terms of who's the general manager. What do we need? We need a rush defensive end, Ote Baker. We need another wide receiver, True Edwards. They need tight ends. They went out and got two or three tight ends. And when the number seven, um, McKinney, on the defensive line, Jordan, this guy looks like a single-digit defensive lineman. He's not big. He's not sloppy. He can play inside. He can play outside. I, I'm talking about Oklahoma, Georgia, Stanford, big-time college transfer guys. These guys are going to contribute right away. It's plug and play. We need a defensive end. Go out and get one. We need a safety. Go out and get one. We need a tight end. Go out and get one. In the old days, Jordan, you'd be lucky if you get a good JC guy that didn't have all kinds of baggage. Then you'd be lucky if you could find a, you know, uh, a freshman coming out, a, a senior coming out of high school that will play for you in two years or so, whatever else. And you got to develop him. These guys plug and play. And when I talk about plug and play, I'm impressed by what they had. And I think going back to your original question, did not did nobody watch the Houston game? Did they not see the best of Chevin Cadero, the best of Turner, the best of the defense, the best of the special teams? To me, they whipped Houston's ass on all three phases. And that is the last game. You're only as good as the last game you play. That was pretty good to be rated fifth in the Mountain West, uh, Western Division or whatever division they're in. It's embarrassing. Yeah, I, I, I'm kind of bullish on this team as well for a lot of the reasons that you mentioned. And, and that's, I think a lot of people got, turned off maybe from a mid-major level when it came to the the transfer portal and it's like oh, all our best players are going to leave well there's yeah. two ways right you can also get some of these guys who maybe aren't getting playing time at big power five schools that want to come down here and so i, I kind of wonder what your take is similarly on on the new name image likeness thing and how that's going to play out how we're already seeing it play out a lot of the hawaii boys maybe more so on the mainland or, or not just boys but Hawaii athletes, maybe more so on the mainland, are, are cashing in. Chevin Cordero himself uh, with some partnerships, local banking institutions. Uh, what what how, what do you think the how it's played out so far, and what what do you expect to to maybe be a ramifications going forward? Yeah, let me segue into that by uh, just touching on what you just talked about as well. I was talking to June Jones the other day, and I talked to him. Can you imagine? going to some of these guys that may be a little disgruntled. They're a backup at Georgia or Alabama, you know, and, and, and they're not exactly happy with their role. The offense could switch, but you can tell these guys, Hey, do you want to play that fifth year in Hawaii? I think that there's a lot, lot of guys throughout these big power five conference schools that would love to play one year of in Hawaii, maybe not five and think about, you know, when they're coming out they're a four or five star guy and they, you know, they want to go to the NFL and they want to be a, a major network and all these other things. But I think one is it, Hawaii can do well in the transfer portal. Two is the unintended consequence. We talked about the JCs weren't heavily recruited and Hawaii did a great job at the JCs, but going to the NLI, I, I still think, you know, we're a small market. We don't have Fortune 400 or Fortune 500 companies here in Hawaii. So you're not going to see us, you know, battle for the Bryce Youngs that are going to make a million dollars, seven figures plus before they even play their first game. But I think there are some companies that will step up and help these guys uh, become, you know, th th some of these guys that are good on the Internet. They're charismatic. They're local boys that stayed home just to try to help this program. My son called me today. He said, Dad, did you see what BYU did? There's a company in Utah that 
just scholarship every single walk-on. Can you imagine that? To me, being the former walk-on myself and being the walk-on coordinator, what a great gesture for some company. Hawaii, to me, is a blue-collar state. They love their local boys that walk on that may be a, like, you know, seriously, he didn't walk on, but look at Darius Mosell. That guy's as good as any linebacker on the West Coast, and nobody wanted him. Why? Because they didn't think he was fast enough. They didn't think he was tall enough. You know, you look at throughout the history of this program, there's going to be some of these guys that are going to become fan favorites that will help sell their product. That would be good for these companies just to say, hey, let me help the program by helping this individual. You know, that's that's part of the evolution of this thing. Right. And we're probably two or three years away from really understanding the ramifications of the NIL situation and what the structure institution to institution is really going to look like. But but you're right. As far as the transfer portal, you know, another major element for Hawaii, the local boys that decide to go away out of high school. And oftentimes you see situations where they change their mind and they want to come back. Isaiah Tufango would be a great example of a guy on this year's roster, Oregon State. Here he is back in a Hawaii uniform. And uh, you'd be surprised how frequently that takes place, right? Yeah. And, and as a new head coach, Todd Graham, Welcome those guys back with open arms. Hey, a young person, not necessarily when I say makes a bad mistake, because, you know, nowadays when you talk to young people, it's how much apparel are they going to get? What number are they going to wear? Who's the apparel sponsor? What's the cost of living allowance? You know, what's the TV uh, network? How many guys are being drafted? There's some intangible or some, some thinking of these young people that we don't understand as older people. But guess what? Do you want to live the rest of your life in Hawaii? Do you want to establish your name and brand in Hawaii? You can still do that by coming back home and showing the local people that you care about this state, you want to play and represent the 808. Yeah, that's a good elevator pitch right there because that certainly does go a long way. As far as this evolution of college football, major continental shift with the recent news that Oklahoma and Texas are seeking to leave the Big 12 Conference and move to the SEC. Uh, this seems to be completely television rights, footprint, money-driven. It doesn't necessarily vibe, I would contend, with the competitive aspect of this, right? It was probably great for Oklahoma uh, and Texas, at least in previous years, to be the big dogs of that particular conference. How does this impact college football, and how close are we to those super conferences that we've heard discussed over the last decade or so? Yeah, and it was about a decade where June Jones said, hey, this is going to happen. And, you know, we've talked about it, but it, it takes a, 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 a huge shift, a huge somebody has to step up. Well, guess what? Texas has stepped up and so has um, Oklahoma. And it's going to happen. Probably, you know, people are talking about 2025. And when it does happen, it goes back to something June said years ago. And he throws so much shit up against the wall that you're not sure what's going to stick. But he said. The non-Power 5 conferences should play in the spring because it's going to be a whole different type of brand of football. Because guess what? The Power 5 conferences are going to have way better television contracts, going to have way better NILs, going to have way better apparel uh, contracts. They're going to have way better everything. And they're going to get the best players in the country. And they're going to, they don't care no longer about these other guys that are basically sucking revenue from them. They're going to be, it's all about greed. This is capitalism at its finest. This is the United States. I'm surprised it hasn't happened uh, sooner. When it does happen, I think Hawaii 
and, and these non-Power 5 conference teams may be better off playing in the spring where they'll have some type of audience and uh, they'll be playing for their own championships or whatever else. Because right now, they're not really playing for a national championship anyway. You're playing for a, a, a bowl game. You're playing for a conference championship. But I think there would be room for the spring football for non-Power 5 conference teams. And again, hey, say what you want about JJ, bro. Sometimes it does stick. No, it, it really does. It really, I mean, he shared that on our radio show years ago. I know it, it was an idea he's had for a long, long time. And as the years go on, it, it looks more and more like he was seeing into the future uh, because everything points to that happening eventually uh, as we get into this. Uh, Rich, I kind of wanted to transition, ask you a little bit about pro football. We had the Hall of Fame game last weekend, full slate of preseason games going on this weekend. Um, of course, the, the Hawaii quarterbacks are always sort of front of mind, right? Year two for Tua, um, what the future holds for a guy like Marcus Mariota, um, two guys I know that you know fairly well. What, what do you anticipate coming up this NFL season? We'll get to the Bucks and the Pats and all those guys later. Well, I, I think the pundits and uh, social media have really exacerbated, uh, I wouldn't say the downfall of Tua Tungavailoa, but some people have lost confidence. And, and, and again, this would have never happened 10 years ago, not even five years ago, but it's what have you done for me lately? And people don't look to me that position, you know, baseball pitcher is an interesting position because it's obviously you have the ball in your hands. You, you, you control a lot of the outcome of the game, but in team sports and the ultimate team sport is football. And you'd know better than anybody else. If you don't have a running game, if you don't have quality wide receivers, if you don't have a quality scheme, and, and again, I used to watch them play last year, and hey, Chan Gailey's, you know, not a Hall of Famer, but obviously a very respected veteran offensive coordinator, but he's no longer with the Miami Dolphins, and it was check downs, it was bubble screens, it was not stretching the field, and, and, you know, and then to, and to his defense, and again, I'm not just going to because I love the guy and I love what he stands for and I, and I believe in him and all those other things. And, and he's a personal friend. I'm not going to say things that I don't think are true, but think about this. The guy came off of not just like ACL surgery. We're talking about a catastrophic hip surgery that if you question a career ending injury, that would be in question. Um, if you question a non off season with COVID and the ability to get timing and to be, to practice with your teammates and all those other things, this is a once in a lifetime type of thing that happened to a guy that had the injury, had the COVID offseason, was rushed into playing pretty early in his career, obviously, which now all first round draft picks are expected to, I guess, to start and play. We'll see with Mac Jones. Um, but I think this is going to be a breakout year for two. I think they have better weapons. I think they obviously changed offensive coordinators. I think the timing will be better. And I, and I see Tua uh, being a star in this league. And, you know, Izzy Russell Wilson, I still think coming back 100% from hip surgery, he has the ability to move around like a Russell Wilson. Izzy Drew Brees, hey, Drew, we're talking about icons. We're talking about guys that are first ballot Hall of Fame type of guys. I, I still think Tua has that potential, but let's let it mature. Let's let it uh, uh, be a kind of an organic thing instead of the rush to judgment on a young quarterback. I love Tua. I hope Marcus gets his chance too. And when Marcus got his chance last year, God, I thought he played well in, the, in that in that one game he played and should have won that game. So I still believe highly in the quarterbacks from the state of Hawaii and uh, love to see both of those guys do well. Yeah, it would be awesome. I, I was kind of hoping the the Colts would maybe make a trade for for Marcus. Yeah, that's get, nice. him on, get him with that roster. That'd be a lot of fun to see. 
Uh, all right. So uh, give us give us the case for the Patriots bounce back. And is uh, Tom Brady just going to win another Super Bowl when this is all said and done in February? Well, you know, it's never been done before, right, Jordan? You got every all 22 returning guys from last year's Super Bowl signed under contract. You know, Brady has, again, a, a full off season. Uh, Brady has the ability to, you know, he seems like even though Father Time has never lost, the guy eats right, he trains right, he uh, prepares himself like no other. And he's just, com- when Todd Graham talks about Chevin Cordero becoming a commander, this maybe no better commander in all of uh, sports history in terms of, I don't care if you're Antonio Brown. I I don't care if you're Randy Moss. I don't care what type of baggage you had off the field. When you come to that locker room with Tom Brady in there, the expectations. uh, And, and, you know, I I remember Dan Marino and and some of these guys, uh, Joe Montana and some of these guys, they get angry if you run the wrong route. They get angry if you don't know what you're doing in pass protection. They don't put up with uh, guys that are not professional. So Brady's the ultimate professional He's not the most talented guy to ever play that position. I think Aaron Rodgers is, and I think Patrick Mahomes will be. But I think he's the ultimate competitor. And so I think they'll be in contention. When it comes to the Patriots, Jordan, I still think they have a lot of holes. But I do think we may see Mac Jones a lot sooner than people have anticipated. And uh, he had a good first uh, preseason showing last night. So it's they'll be interesting. They'll be competitive. Uh, but But Tampa Bay, Super Bowl again, it's hard to do. It's hard to do. Yeah, and UH football right around the corner, Rich. Looking forward to it, man. Always appreciate your time. You're our resident football guru, and uh, you continue to be, and so we always appreciate your accessibility, man. The, the one thing I would have loved to just touch on is, is the travesty of our kids in high school. You know, one of three states not playing football last year, Maine, Connecticut, and Hawaii, us being the best football playing state and the most logistically challenged. And then the second thing is, you know, this delay of the season and will we have mm-hmm. a season? And, you know, these are not just scholarships, financial aid. These are memories. These are times that young people need in their recreational life. So I'm hoping we can somehow solve this high school football thing and get these kids out there playing because there's so many guys that have transferred out of state. And to me, our kids need to play sports, whether coaches have to coach from the box, from the stands, with masks on, with full body suits, whatever it is, let the kids play. Yeah, I'm all for that, man. Let's let's get through this COVID nightmare and let's do what we need to do. Let's listen to the experts and do what has to be done to get through this damn thing. COVID, I'm, I'm so sick of this, but uh, never sick of you, Rich. And, and best to you and the family. Uh, love you, man. And talk to you again soon. Yeah, you too. Take care of your pops and your mom. And uh, Jordan, can't wait to see you, my brother. Always a pleasure, guys. Aloha. All right. Big thanks once again to Rich Miano. Always a pleasure talking story with that guy. He's just one of the good peeps around, that's for sure, and knows his stuff when it comes to the gridiron. All right. It is time now for our post game. And our best and worst brought to you by Waste Pro Hawaii, Maui's premier full service refuse company offering various sizes of dumpsters and roll off containers for commercial construction and residential use. Family owned and operated with over 40 years of service to the Maui community, Waste Pro Hawaii is committed to customer service and responsible waste management. Visit wasteprohawaii.com for services information. Give me your best here for this episode, Jordan. Yeah, my best. This was. Uh... I don't know how great this is, but uh, I found this fascinating. Uh, apparently, the Baltimore Ravens have won 17 straight preseason games. They last lost in 2015. They play again this weekend, obviously. 
uh, to start off the preseason slate. Uh, longest preseason win streak in at least 25 years. It is absolutely meaningless uh, and absolutely has no bearing. But I just, how does that happen, right? Teams are like trying not to win in some of these preseason games, putting guys out there, right? I mean, they, they're playing hard and whatnot. <laughs> That's got to be some sort of statistical anomaly that is way up there. 17 straight preseason games. Congratulations to the Ravens. No trophy, I don't think, that comes with that. Yeah, they're they're borderline roster players, like the ones trying to make the roster. They're they're just collectively a juggernaut. You know what I mean? Like their their preseason tradition and legacy is like no other. That is a really interesting stat. They ever if, if the league ever went on strike again, their replacement players <laughs> would win the Lombardi. That's right. That's right. 100 percent All right, let's move over to my best. And I'm talking about the Savannah Bananas. That's right. The Savannah Bananas, uh, they are a team in the Coastal Plain Baseball League known for pulling off entertaining stunts, let's say. And so the other night, Josh Lavender, an infielder for the Bananas, walked up to home plate accompanied by a golf caddy. You got to look up the video of this thing because it is righteous. The caddy walked up, was in full sort of master's caddy garb, holding the golf bag. When they walked up to the batter's box, he pulled out an actual golf club. Lavender looked at it, gave it back to the caddy, who then changed the club and pulled out an actual baseball bat. It was executed to perfection. Uh, again, this is a team known for some of these kinds of antics. They have an owner, very eccentric owner, who wears a tuxedo of a different, uh, very loud color to each and every game. I think that night he was wearing like a big orange one, a la Dumb and Dumber. Uh, and so you have that aspect of it. They bring a lot of fun to the ballpark. I think they've sold out every home game for the last several seasons because of some of this stuff. Uh, by the way, little uh, side note, former Rainbow Cole Kaler played in that league last summer he played for the Macon Bacon and uh, no I don't think every team name and city has to rhyme but uh, in the case of the Macon Bacon and the Savannah Bananas they do and I love them for it did you see this thing no I haven't I haven't I'm familiar with the league a little bit uh that they the creativity in like minor league summer league ballparks and and marketing departments is is quite brilliant quite brilliant I, I love this i love this idea for sure all right let's move over to our worst what's your worst yeah my worst it's just a general gripe um we kind of touched on this with the olympic discussion in previous episodes but like nbc's olympic coverage just show it to us live just give us live access on the tv for the events i don't want to watch it 17 hours later because i got a notification on my phone in the middle of the night to tell me who won the 100 meter dash just give us just give us the option. I know we can stream and all these kinds of things. It's just harder to find. That's all I ask. Just show it to us live. That was an absolute debacle. Uh, with all due respect to NBC, I don't know why I have to preface it with that. But uh, yeah, I felt like the way they handled this and, you know, obviously they're trying to drive. I mean, they spent a lot of money on the Olympics. They're trying to drive people to their app, right? The Peacock. So I, I get that to a degree. Uh, but they're doing everyone a disservice because you're right. It was just impossible to figure out what time this event was on, what channel was it on? Was it even on TV or was it on the app? Like that could have been an Olympic event unto itself was trying to figure out how to watch Olympic events on all the different NBC platforms. Oh, I know. I know. Just, just make it easier on us. That's all we ask. Yeah. That's all we ask. All right. Well, uh, my worst also associated with sports television 
And it's Skip Bayless, the king of trolling and foot and mouth takery, said on his show Undisputed with Shannon Sharp the other day uh, that he wouldn't be able to respect a coach like Mike McCarthy of the Cowboys because he was overweight. He questioned whether or not those kinds of coaches could be effective if they don't show the same kind of commitment to themselves and, and being in shape. It was a really, really odd type of stance to take and totally discounting the fact that, you know, Andy Reid won the Super Bowl just a couple of seasons ago. Jenny Taft, who was working as the moderator of the show, then sort of challenged him on that and said that that, that was kind of unfair. She also seemed to release some built up frustration by proclaiming that she could have an opinion. They went back and forth a little bit. It was, it was a genuine kind of emotional moment. Skip replied, um, no, uh, referring to her saying she could have an opinion. It was really awkward, really bad. They went to a commercial. This thing goes viral. Uh, the world seems to be taking the side of Jenny Taft here. The next day, everyone was expecting Skip to maybe reference this. They did not. They talked about Dak Prescott and LeBron James 98% of the show. So they were business as usual the next day. But my worst is just Skip Bayless, who has made being a sports television pundit troll an actual industry. And I kind of felt like in that moment when Jenny Taft was sort of challenging him that Skip wanted to tell her like, look, 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 Jenny, I'm doing a thing here. This is my thing. This is what makes me famous. This is why I make money. Don't interject. Don't interrupt me. This is my thing. If I were to talk about how I actually genuinely feel about stuff, nobody would care. I have to say outlandish things. You just got to understand that. Like that was the vibe. Either way you slice it, Skip Bayless comes off looking foolish, as usual. The usual Skip, right? Even if it's your thing, like your thing is to just like body shame people. <laughs> like how, how is that acceptable to be your thing? Like get a little more creative, Skip. That's kind of what I do every time uh, when I, uh, I'm flipping through the channels and I come upon uh, Skip Bayless. I skip to the next channel. And that's our best and worst brought to you by Waste Pro Hawaii Maui, owned Maui operated for Maui's people. Thanks once again to Rich Miano for joining us. Hit us up on Twitter at Kanoa Leahy, at Jordan Helly, or at Talk Sports 808. Jordan, it's been real. Have a good weekend, man. Talk to you again soon. See you, bud.